He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. I remember thinking two things when he punched me, one of which was, oh man, I'm going to be really late for work. But the other thing was, what did he mean about the United Nations? For most New Zealanders, political violence has always been something that happens in another country. There weren't normal screams then. They were right panicking. And then like when we looked down the road, there was a woman laid on the floor. Now, as we embark upon an election campaign, it's a clear and present danger in Aotearoa. I don't think I have a day here where I don't have threats and attacks. You give up reporting them. I, I, I live with security cameras on my house and nearly every angle you can come in. I think it is a very real threat. Miss and disinformation is rampant across online spaces, with the 2023 election campaign coming into view. It's even seeped into mainstream media like RNZ. It frequently fans racism, sexism, anti-Semitism. The list goes on. It ferments hatred and division. Experts, community leaders, and even people who've been active players in conspiracy theory networks are really worried about where it's taking us. There are the physical threats and violent acts, and then there is the corrosive impact on our democracy. Does anyone know what they're voting for anymore? If I had continued to believe what I was invited to believe, it was going to become a whole way of life of protests, of fear, of spreading misinformation. Who can you even trust if you can't rely on your own close family members? Whether it be in a family event or, or elsewhere, he's saying horrible things. It's uncomfortable. We want no part of that. We don't want any part of that at all, but you're father to these kids, right? So you're inevitably tied to us as a family. I'm Susie Ferguson, and this is Undercurrent, an RNZ documentary series on disinformation. Episode 7, The Endgame. You've probably heard the term doom-scrolling, and there's every chance you've done a bit of it yourself. It's the modern habit of staring at your smartphone, drinking down an endless stream of bad news. Talking about myths and disinformation can feel a bit like doom-scrolling for the ears gets pretty grim. The misinformation problem is bad. There's no hiding from that. But there are ways of tackling this. In this last episode of Undercurrent, you're going to hear about a programme that's working quietly away at civilising the comment threads. And we'll go back to some of the people who've shared their experiences and expertise in earlier episodes. This time, they're looking to the future. And the good news is, many of them see signs of hope and belief in our capacity to tackle the problem of mis- and disinformation. We begin with Martha, who grew up around conspiracy theories. Martha's not a real name, and her words are spoken by an actor. That was one of the things that did make my brain fry a little bit, was that, if you remember that blue and gold dress that was on Facebook about eight years ago? What colour is it? Blue. Grey blue. I see white and gold. No way. <laughs> And half the people would look at this dress and they would say, oh, that is gold. And the other half would swear on their life that it's blue. No way, that's black and blue. No way. If hashtag the dress isn't ringing a bell for you, how about this? 
And then there was a sound phenomena that came second, Laurel Oyani. Laurel. Laurel. What's really weird, as for both of them, I could eventually hear and see it both ways. Laurel. So initially I thought it was Laurel. And I think originally I saw the dress as gold. But what those two things told me, and this was even before the big AI takeover, was that we cannot necessarily trust what our eyes see or what our ears even hear as being truth, as being an absolute gospel truth. Basically, our perception of reality is formed through our own lens, whether it's our ears, how we hear, our eyes, how we see. So there are multiple realities, unfortunately. Just saying it was Yanni and 100% that dress was blue. But when Martha says this, it's a bit of a light bulb moment for me. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying there aren't hard and fast facts. But it's a really neat example of pausing, taking a step back, being thoughtful and looking for the nuance. Linda's another person who's been close to misinformation networks and who we introduced in an earlier episode. She signed up for Tawiwi Totoko, an active listening anti-racism course, after seeing it advertised on Facebook. The idea is basically to get involved in bigoted online conversations with the goal of positively influencing them. And I was interested in finding a way where I could counter the arguments that were coming from the family members. That's an actor's voice you're hearing to protect her identity, as Linda has people in her Fano who believe in extreme ideologies. Tell me a little bit about the training. What do you do? Well, there's a formula that's been put together about how to get alongside somebody who's got racist kind of arguments or arguments about anything, really, in the context of Aotearoa, New Zealand. But the idea is to get alongside somebody on an online forum so you can counter the argument. And it's a collective of people from all walks of life. And I really like them. I think they're lovely people. To feel that there's this growing groundswell of people who who have prepared to walk alongside others who have a different view in order to or to help people see a different perspective. Action Station's involved in the project and its 10-week training programme. I met its director, Cassie Hardentorpe, in her kainga, with her pepi in her auntie's arms and her kuri, her dog, running round the whare. <laughs> What's going on in the comments section is real life. We often think that it's just happening virtually, but this impacts people in their real lives. Tawiwi Totoko started in 2018. Māori or marginalised communities are often the canary in the mine to the hate that is rising up, right? And we saw that prior to the Christchurch mosque attacks is that there were Muslim women who were already saying that this was a concern. So in some ways, this work was happening before disinformation really started to explode. It's actually pretty versatile to any marginalised community. So the volunteers have also um, engaged around um, Islamophobia, anti-beneficiary comments as well, uh, anti-refugees, and very recently the anti-trans movement as well. So what we've noticed is that when it comes towards bigotry and prejudice, this method 
it works no matter the the, the differentism. The programme is guided by research and subject to ongoing evaluation. If someone is saying racist things, how do you deal with it? You express surprise if that's what you're really feeling and that's got to be authentic surprise at how they came to believe that and say that your own experience has been different. And giving facts and figures is not helpful for people who are going to take that perspective, it turns them right off. So really just listening, yeah, hearing back from that person, engaging with that person so that if that person is really genuine in what they're saying, you know, is not a troll and you know, kind of looking to bait people, then there is a chance of engagement. And I've I've seen my fellow members of the organisation engage with people and have really interesting conversations where the other person may or may not uh, come to a perspective that is a bit different or say, oh, I never thought of it that way. That's all it needs. It's one sort of question mark and their head, maybe you're right, or maybe I can think about this in a different way. And Cassie says this matters because it's not just about the person making the comments, but about everyone else who's lurking. It's such a stark difference between a comment thread that doesn't have one of these volunteers on it versus one that does. Because you just start to see this positivity come through. You start to see people um, fight through some of the vitriol and bring a positive vision. It fosters this softness and a kindness that is often not seen on the internet comment section. And so I can really tell the difference between those two things. And I do think it starts to shift the, the, the public dialogue, right? Because when I go on a comment section... And if I see every single person is posting something hateful towards Māori, for example, then I'm going to have a view of the world where I think the majority of people feel that way about me and my whānau. Whereas when I start to see people standing up for Māori, I start to see the world in a different way. People who have been trained in this type of volunteering very naturally go and have these conversations with other people, with their friends and their family, and report that they're able to see openings and ways forward in those conversations. It's also changed how, offline, Linda deals with her whānau. I think what I do is I get quiet, and that's never been my mode of operation in the past. I've always been very opinionated and loud about things, This is a different way for me to behave, to get very quiet and listen and then ask questions. What's her name? Thank you for talking to me and for having me in your kainga. I think people are craving genuine conversations on things that matter to them. And the Facebook comment section is the easiest place that they have to go. If you're at home and you have kids or you have a job or you're busy, you might not be able to have a chance to go out in the community and talk with other people about the issues. This is where the conversations are happening. But at the moment, they're so slanted in this us versus them rhetoric um, in black and white, not diving into the grey and not also giving each other the grace to be able to come back from that hardline argument it intercepts this idea of 
these very fixed positions. And I think that's what people are trying to force themselves into. And I think that's what our social media creates through algorithms, right? You're going to get more reactions and more attention on a post that has very polarized perspectives on an issue. And what I love about these volunteers is they're going in and they're refusing to be polarized. They're refusing to say that everything is us versus them. Let's have a conversation and tease it out more. And that's a very difficult thing to do online, but they do it really, really beautifully. So it's kind of a pushback to the algorithm. Yes. You know, it's that way of instead of... um monetizing your your hate or your outrage it's it's kind of cutting that out from underneath yes well it's a very human response as well it's being as human as possible in the face of hate and vitriol and algorithms and robotic ai type things it is refusing to go down the path of us versus them. It is saying, hold on, let's take a moment, let's pause, let's remember who we are as humans (laughs) and start to talk about what is actually going on here, which I think is pretty radical in social media. What Cassie said here is worth repeating. She says it's pretty radical on social media to remember who we are as humans. The social media algorithms have feasted on hate and division. But there are other strong human emotions that chase close behind, according to researcher Dr Jess Berenson-Shaw. Do you know, when we look at the research and studies, even though uh, fear-driven information or outrage or anger-based information does get shared and spread a lot, very close behind uh, are pieces of information which are much more focused on some of those deeper, more kind of connected human values around love and joy and laughter. Beyond our own accounts, we don't have any real control over social media. Governments have belatedly shown some interest in it. Remember those big congressional hearings in the US where Meta's Mark Zuckerberg sweated and squirmed under the glare of camera lights and showy questions from senators. But it's clear now that we didn't do enough to prevent these tools from being used for harm as well. And that goes for fake news, for foreign interference in elections and hate speech. There's been similar attention on TikTok recently. The Christchurch Call, established by former Prime Minister Dame Jacinda Ardern, is trying a more diplomatic approach kill them with kindness. So what are we left with? Anjum Rahman of the inclusive Aotearoa Collective thinks about this a lot. So I asked her. We hear a lot about social cohesion. What is social cohesion and, and how do we do it? Yeah, uh, that's a million dollar question, isn't it? For me, social cohesion isn't about everyone just being the same and everyone just getting along. I think true social cohesion is where we can fundamentally disagree with each other, hold absolutely opposing viewpoints and still be able to value and respect each other and still say, yeah, that person deserves a house, they deserve shelter, they deserve to be treated well, they deserve a job. Um, And the fact that I disagree with them about these things doesn't mean I hate them or that they're terrible. We can do it in times of disaster. Social cohesion is when we do it, when there's no disaster. We know that big, painful disasters are becoming more common. In 2023, 
Cyclone Gabrielle and the Auckland floods again inspired a degree of rallying together. PR man David Cormack recalls a shared response to a much earlier existential crisis. I think back to when I was at primary school, and that was in the early 90s, and we got told that there was this hole in the ozone layer that was going to give us all skin cancer, and that what was causing it was CFCs. And so, you know, everyone, the whole world, when scientists are telling us CFCs are bad, and so we all came together, and we just stopped using CFCs, and everyone got involved, and it was wonderful, and I understand that the, the ozone hole is now actually closing. Because you, you look at where we're at. I don't want to see society break down. I've got a four and a half year old child. I'd like her to grow up in some kind of civil society where she can, she can live in a diverse multicultural society and, and get along with people. So could the shared experiences of the climate crisis add up to a more cohesive society in non-emergency times? Here's Anjum Raman again. I thought that after the Christchurch attacks, I thought that after covid what I strongly believe is social cohesion will only happen if we work at it. This is not something that will just happen and it will happen organically. Um, actually, we need to be conscious and working at it all the time. Um, I, I'm hopeful. I see some great things happening in terms of um, te reo and New Zealand history being introduced into schools and it's easy to lose sight of that. Um, but let's not be fooled by the fact that we do have actors that are seeking to disrupt, that are seeking to divide. And we can't just assume that they'll be ineffective or that we will we will just overcome it naturally. We've got to work at it. At the start of this series, we met Kim Leadbeater. Her sister, the British MP Joe Cox, was shot and stabbed to death in June 2016, murdered in broad daylight by a far-right activist, a white supremacist. It's news coverage from that killing you've heard at the beginning of each episode in this series. Kim now holds the same seat. She told me about the ways she's working for common good. And that has to start at grassroots level in our towns and our villages and our cities where we bring people together and, and I kind of understand if you don't meet people who are not like you, then there is a nervousness and there can be an apprehension. So let's provide those opportunities through community events and, and groups and, and the voluntary sector. You know, charities are brilliant at this, at bringing people together. I always default to sport because that's my background. You know, if you're playing in a, in a rugby match or you're running a race, the differences between you as human beings don't matter. You've got that shared goal and you've got that shared uh, purpose. Um, often food is a really good way of doing that. So bringing people together through, you know, through cake, that tends to be what I go for. <laughs> but, but, you know, so finding ways of community building so that we view others as we view ourselves and we respect everybody, irrespective of those different um, backgrounds. And also being prepared to listen to other people's points of view. I think we get so focused on our own viewpoints and getting our message across that we close our minds. And, and I don't think that's a good place to be. New Zealand journalist and author of Cult Trip, Anka Richter, stresses the power of compassion for loved ones who've been drawn in by disinformation. She says we need... To have awareness, not be naive, address the problem, speak about it, but also have compassion for people who are affected by that, even if they're doing the wrong thing. 
and saying things that are really upsetting you and that you know is wrong, don't mock or shame them. It's not going to change anything. It's not going to help them. In fact, it's going to entrench them further in their beliefs. But you have to take them seriously and that they believe this, that they're not stupid, that they have their maybe valid reasons why they got into this in the first place. And then they turned a corner and turned another corner and then they ended up in a pretty bad place. And it could have been you and it could have been me. That sounds some way out of the comfort zone for most people. And that's what we should expect, says Disinformation Project director Kate Hanna. It involves a kind of set of conversations that New Zealanders might be um, nervous about having because they're kind of conversations about feelings and ideas and values and all sorts of things like that that are traditionally just things we haven't done. We've kind of turned up to give people physical support when they're having a crisis and we haven't necessarily been good at talking about the aspects of that crisis. So, you know, we do need to figure out ways in which we can can do that. So are we up for this? Professor Paul Spoonley says we'll need some action from political leaders, hate speech legislation, for example. But we'll also need some resilience because this is going to take a while. Paul Spoonley is a sociologist and co-director of Hefenua Torikura, the National Centre of Research Excellence for Preventing and Countering Violent Extremism. We've left behind many of the public health measures that we adopted during the um, pandemic, at its crisis at least. And it seems to me that even though time might heal some of these divisions in the community, for the moment there are still powerful drivers that people are holding to that continue some of the politics we saw emerge during the the pandemic. How long will those politics continue to drive people's views and and behaviours and their online online behaviour? I don't know. And, And the optimistic side of me thinks that you know, will there come a moment in two years or five years or ten years when that will become a memory? You think it's something that will take that sort of magnitude of time to work through? I do, and I do partly because we've been been caught off guard by the social and political dynamics which have emerged in the last five years or so. And we have very few tools to moderate the negative impacts of the online world. And what disappoints me is that we still struggle to bring to Parliament hate speech legislation which might provide us with some guidance but also some tools to deal with the very worst examples of what's happening online. So I I just think we socially um, struggle to understand what is happening and in terms of a response we still have uh, quite some way to go before I think we'll have anything which helps rebuild social cohesion and which limits the the very negative consequences of what we've seen in the last couple of years. Do we need to take steps to regulate or curtail or deal with social media? because of the consequences that we are bearing now? I do think we need to legislate, but before that, I think we need a major investment in education. Educate before you legislate. 
And uh, one of the things that concerns me is, is digital literacy, is being able to establish what it is you're seeing online. I think that's something we need to provide our young people through our education system, but people generally. Indeed. Um, so, so we were just talking about. Uh, I can't hear you. But, uh, this is really annoying. Here we are again on that dodgy line to Indigenous Māori activist Tina Ngata in Tairawhiti. And it's still raining. Honestly, where did we go? Where did we get up to? <laughs> I was just, um, I was going to ask you about unity, kotahitanga, I guess. How, how do we even get there? Do we just all need to put our phones down? Like, how do we do this? You know, pathways of healing start with forums of truth, is uh, an adage. <laughs> In the, in the Indigenous movement, and that's why you have, you know, commissions, truth and reconciliation commissions, and this is, for me, a pathway of healing that we need to undertake. And it starts with forms of truth and reckoning with our history, because you know, we can't get away from the fact that this is deeply rooted in white supremacy. It, I don't know what is going on. The internet does not want us to have this conversation for sure, eh? Uh, uh, I'm going to try the 5G. How's that topical? It wasn't much better, if I'm honest. Our struggle with an unstable Wi-Fi connection peaked right at the end of our corridor. The infuriating, complicating internet had its way with us right to the end. And the question, really, is for those that have the ability and the resource, what are you going to do to protect the most vulnerable, the most marginalised? In case you didn't catch that, her question is, what are you going to do? Undercurrent is an RNZ series created, produced and presented by me, Susie Ferguson. It was written by Susie Ferguson and John Hartfelt. It features the voices of Vivian Bell, Richard Chapman, Francesca Ems and Carmel McGlone, produced with Duncan Smith. The studio engineers are William Saunders, Mark Chesterman and Phil Benj. The executive editor is John Hartfelt. For more information and resources, visit our website, rnz.co.nz slash undercurrent. <laughs>